I might have made a mistake when I put that hymn right before I had to talk. <laughs> that last line, man. Let the forest be untainted. Let the streams be undefiled. Let the waters of the river as they flow down to the ocean be as sweet as in the old days when the mountains stood alone. There's a vision for you. I was nine years old in 1987 at the time of the harmonic convergence. Many of you probably remember this. Some of you may not have been paying attention to the New Age world at that moment. But it was a time when the planets were apparently coming into alignment and New Age leaders all over the world coordinated a great simultaneous meditation meant to usher us into a new era of peace on Earth. My understanding at nine was murky at best. And I haven't been able to find corroboration of this detail, but I very clearly remember my teenage sister telling my family about a prophecy she had heard of around the harmonic convergence that if we didn't do something right, maybe the meditation thing, some vast crisis was going to strike humanity and something like 50% of the population would perish in the next century. In retrospect, I suspect that my parents were trying very hard not to roll their eyes too overtly as my sister was telling them about this in tones of great excitement. And they very patiently cautioned her not to take the prophecies too seriously. But I heard this conversation, and as a nine-year-old, I kept mulling it over, working it, like a sore spot. And I remember the moment that for a minute, I could imagine it. I was just riding my bike on a beautiful summer day down a quiet little suburban street. And suddenly, I could see it. I could imagine, however foggily, the idea that some crisis was coming that in my lifetime, suddenly things would not be the way they've always been. That it might cause the deaths of millions. It, it felt like a tsunami looming just out of view that was going to crash at some unknown time in the future. I carried that for years even though I, I didn't really believe in the harmonic convergence. This is a thing that's hard for any of us to really imagine, especially those of us who live here in a relatively blessedly stable society, where for the most part we have access to what we need. We all have a tendency to assume that things will always continue more or less as they are now. 
Even if we know intellectually that things are going to change, it's a gut thing, it's an assumption that I think as humans we are all prone to. There's a tendency to assume that however things were in our own childhood is a kind of baseline normal for the world. I remember the early days of the pandemic when the warnings were getting dire and people were calling for some kind of mass quarantine for everything to just shut down and it seemed like an impossibility, didn't it? Do you remember when they first started talking about it and I remember us turning to each other incredulously and saying, you're serious? Everybody's just gonna stop going to work and stop going to school and we're all just gonna suddenly sit in our homes for what, weeks, months? Nah, that'd never happen. It was an impossibility right up till the moment it became reality. And yes, many people objected and not every city acted as effectively as one might hope. But overall, something remarkable happened there. Something that if you had asked me six months earlier, I would never have believed. A, a gathering of political will. And Greta Thunberg, the, the young environmental activist, points out that this came about really for just one reason. And it was because the news told the truth. It was all over the headlines. You couldn't avoid it. They didn't lull us with stories. They didn't doom us with fear. They just told the facts. This is coming. This is spreading. This is real. And we acted. We pulled it together as we do in a crisis. It turns out we are capable of remarkable things when we can acknowledge as a unit that we are in crisis. Last year, I stood in this pulpit on a day in mid-May that reached close to 100 degrees. And I talked then about the terrible silence surrounding the climate crisis. How the, na the naturalists, the environmentalists, the scientists were screaming, but the news said nothing. Since last year, I'm actually weirdly glad to say the problem has grown harder to ignore. This summer shattered heat records all over the US and around the world with scorching temperatures throughout the Southwest. I have a friend in New Orleans who works outdoors and said that she would just go home in the evenings and stand in her shower and cry. We've seen wildfires in the Southwest, in Hawaii, in Canada, in Europe. We've seen major flooding in the Northeast, and of course, all of Southeast Asia. And just a week ago, a tropical storm 
hit Nevada for the first time on record. The sea surface temperature right now is higher than it has ever been. The extent of the sea ice is the lowest. It's putting sea life into crisis, and it's signaling changes to global ocean circulation patterns that could irrevocably change weather patterns all over the world. It is terrible, but it's also thankfully been too much for the world media to ignore. Not altogether. Each of these crises tends to make headlines, and the articles often cite global rising temperatures among the causes. But still the media has often been too tentative about linking them all together, about naming the pattern for what it is, and reminding the reader of the ticking clock. It's just gonna keep getting worse and faster until we take decisive action. And I'm talking about the news because it's not just a sideline issue. In a very real sense, it's the core problem. Greta Thunberg goes on to explain, we know what it means to treat something as a crisis, and we know way beyond a doubt that the climate crisis has never once in any way been treated as such in this country. During the week of the 2021 UN Climate Change Conference in Glasgow, the environmental media coverage was at its peak, but it still struggled to compete with the airtime dedicated to Britney Spears as she regained control over her life. This is one of countless examples of how we are constantly being told indirectly that we are fine. After all, if a newspaper dedicates most of its space to sport and celebrities and diets and crime, then surely all that talk of an existential crisis must be blown way out of proportion. And the credibility of all those scientists must not be considered very great if they say all those things about extinction and code red for humanity and still get bumped from the front page by Kim Kardashian or Manchester United. There is still a way out of this, she writes. Science has delivered the data. Grassroots movements and non-governmental organizations have brought those facts into our societies. But in order to turn all this into political action, we need to drastically scale up the process. Given the size of our mission and the time left to act, there is, frankly, no entity other than the media that has the opportunity to create the necessary transformation of our global society. In order that, for that to happen, they must start treating the climate, ecological, and sustainability crisis like the existential crisis it is. It has to dominate the news. But it's not surprising that it's hard to hold the headlines. It's intimidating, it's overwhelming. 
I subscribe to several channels of climate news, and I have to tell you that before I open those boxes, sometimes I have to take a breath. It's hard to see that truth and not just get swept away by despair. And no news agency wants to be a constant harbinger of despair because nobody wants to read that news. It's natural, it's human to want to hide, to put it out of your mind when it feels too big to handle, when you just have to get through planning the groceries for this week, and it's hard to even like keep yourself from putting out of your mind the leftovers in the back of the fridge, or that cancer screening you know you really ought to get done, but it's going to be unpleasant. I mean, if we can't even hold on to that, is it any wonder that it's hard to hold this, this big picture, the tsunami that's still just out of sight. And if that's been you, I, I hope you're gentle with yourself because I think it's been all of us, every last living soul, except the handful who are yelling. How do we do it? How do we live in a burning world and keep our eyes clear and still keep our hearts whole and keep on moving forward and keep living and keep finding joy because I'm not asking anyone to stop dancing or singing. I think the first step though is to occasionally be willing to sing the Lamentations. This is, in many ways, a process of grief. And we, as a society, are stuck somewhere around denial and anger. Maybe a little bargaining. As a society, we either don't look at it, or we say, Maybe it's not so bad. Maybe we can get out of this uh, if we just sort of tweak things just a little bit. And we need to move through. Small change, incremental change, isn't going to do it anymore. We need to find a place of acceptance, and part of that is mourning. Mourning openly, mourning publicly, like the ancient Israelites who tore their clothes and put ashes on their skin to show their grief at the fall of Jerusalem, who cried out in the streets. Lamentation is a holy act. It is not just grief. It is a public call to acknowledge the crisis. And as long as we are unwilling to even name it over Thanksgiving dinner or a polite tea with friends, it will remain a thing that has, we hold in silence until the wave crashes over us. But acceptance doesn't only mean depression. And I don't mean to say that it does. This is where the Buddhists come in. 
I know this glass is already broken. And so I enjoy it incredibly. Friends, the glass is already broken. The world is going to change. But if you know that to your bones, it doesn't have to be all depression. The Buddhists tell us that with acceptance, that is the only place to find peace. That in knowing the change is coming, it can heighten our joy in the moment at what we have, but it can also keep us in the moment where we still have time to act. Because we do. That's the other bit of good news that I didn't know a year ago. We are still learning things. We are learning incredible things. A year ago, we thought that when we stopped our carbon emissions, even if we stopped dead today, that the problem would keep getting worse for at least five years because of all the heat that is already stored in the ocean and keeps diffusing. And now, now we believe that's not true anymore. Actually, environmental scientists have done studies and looked at the problem and come to the conclusion that the way the carbon drawdown works and the way the energy radiation works, and I don't even know all the science, if we stop, it will start to get better right away. There is still hope. And the other piece of it that is wonderful is that people have been working this problem you're not hearing about this in the news either. But there are solutions, both in clean energy, in green building, in our food webs. Some of the problems almost solve themselves. I recently read about how the process of shipping on Many of, many of the great cargo liners, the ocean cargo liners that bring all of our cheap goods from China and the East, are run on some of the dirtiest, cheapest fuel that we have. It's actually a byproduct of, of manufacturing gasoline, a sort of almost sludge that goes into these cargo liners. And half of those cargo liners are shipping fuel if you take the fossil fuels out of the equation, you not only stop burning the fuels, you stop burning the even worse fuels to ship the fuels. It's, it's a vast spiral of a problem. One that if you just move to clean energy, starts to solve itself. We have the tools, we have made immense progress. In his book, Life on Our Planet, the famed naturalist David Attenborough writes this. When humankind as a whole is in position to give back to nature at least as much as we take and repay some of our debt, we will all be able to lead more balanced lives. There are examples across the world of this new thinking right now 
If every nation were to set profit, people, and planet targets for itself the way New Zealand does, to offer standard of living for its population as high as Japan's, to embrace the renewable revolution like Morocco, to manage its sea like Palau, to farm plants as efficiently and sustainably as some are doing already in the Netherlands, to eat meat as rarely as the people of India, to encourage the wild to return the way Costa Rica has done, to build nature right into its cities like Singapore. The whole of humanity would be able to achieve a balance with nature. We can do it. Some of us already are. But it will take every nation and those with the greatest footprints to make the biggest changes. It won't work if some countries make the transition and others do not. Everything is set to win the future. We have a plan. We know what to do. There is a path to sustainability. It is a path that could lead to a better future for all life on Earth. We must let our politicians and our business leaders know that we understand this. That this vision for the future is not just something we need, it is something above all that we want. We have a plan. We know what to do. This really is a problem of making noise. You'll notice that I have not said a word to you about your personal environmental choices. I'm not going to. It's not that those things don't count for some, but we're past the time of, making, of winning the game by the small, slow road. Honestly, it's great if you have an EV, but we're not going to fix this by eating less meat as individuals on its own. Those are wonderful choices, I support them. But what we need, all of us, is lamentation. We need to make noise. As it happens, purely coincidentally, just a couple days before I started writing this sermon, a call went out from the UUA president, Reverend Sophia Betancourt, to take action for all UUs who are willing to step forward to call their elected representatives. I don't know if you know this, but the UN has called a special meeting to push climate action in September. It's in New York. The president of the UN is calling for all member, all member nations who attend to demonstrate their commitment to reducing fossil fuel emissions. At this moment, the US cannot attend. Because for all our talk, for all that Biden and I hoped in him talked about climate change as something important, we are still escalating our emissions. 
In the last year, the president has authorized new expanded fossil fuel extraction. And I want to be clear. You may have heard talk about how China is the worst polluter and how we can't change this if China doesn't get with the program, and we've met with them. It's true in the raw numbers, but actually China has been treating this as a crisis. China's green energy is expanding vastly faster than our own. If you go not by where the goods are manufactured, but by where they are consumed, it's not China that's the problem, it's us. So Reverend Sophia Betancourt calls on you use if you are willing to call your representatives. There is a QR code on the back of your order of service. If you know how to scan that with your phone, you can scan it. If not, the URL is right above it. That'll take you to the call to action that the president of the UUA has put forward talking about both getting our elected leaders to sign a, pre a pledge to push the president to take action. And also, for those who are close enough to New York and willing to make the trip, there is going to be a march in September around the UN meeting. I hope you'll scan that QR code and consider taking action. A little closer to home, we haven't had a Green Sanctuary Committee in years. There's actually been nobody in this church representing climate action in a long time. I don't know if there's anybody out there right now listening who is as fired up about this as I am, or even a fraction of it, but I want to get it started again. There's stuff we could be doing close to home. The Green Sanctuary Project, which was originally looking more broadly at environmental Sustainability in congregations is now pivoting more directly and fully towards climate change. And I'd like to get on board. There's a sign-up sheet on the coffee hour table. If you're willing, not just to serve on the committee, though if you are, let me know. But even to be emailed occasionally for collective action, I hope you'll put your name down. There's a lot we can do when we're willing to stand together. I know this has been heavy, and I know it's been a lot. But I also know this. For all that this sometimes feels like politics, I also know that for us, for Unitarian Universalists, the earth is sacred. That we honor the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are a part. All existence of which we are a part. We have to love the earth so hard that it takes us past the reluctance. We have to remember those moments of clarity when the fog lifts and we can see the web stretching out to the very furthest reaches of existence and connected right back to each and every one of us.
there is nothing more sacred. We do this out of love. We do this for the earth. For the world, we raise our voices. For the home that gave us birth. In our joy, we sing, returning home to our blue-green hills of earth. Let's sing.